Well, good morning, everyone. My privilege to be with you here this morning. We are looking at Ephesians chapter 1 and continue our series called The Best Life. Uh, my name is Tim, and it's uh, such a privilege to talk about this with you. Uh, a couple of years ago, um, imagine walking out of a room and, and two people um, get a hold of you and they say, we have a message from God for you. Somebody says that to you, it, that grabs your attention. I had been at a, a, a series of meetings all week long with some global leaders, and um, on that particular day, I had led the devotion, and I had to leave early to get to another meeting, and so as I'm uh, escaping, uh, they grabbed a hold of me. We went out into the hall hallway, and uh, these were people that I knew and really trusted, and um, the one said that she had had a vision and knew it was for me. And it was a vision of, of me walking on um, a ridge. And um, she says, you're, you're not in trouble, because sometimes you wonder, okay, have I been bad? God's speaking and I'm, I've been bad. No, you're not in trouble. Um, just a sense of, of caution for you, uh, she said, and uh, that you're walking on a ridge and that there are ditches on either side that you need to be careful about. Um, that was it. They didn't have the interpretation of it, just this is what we have and felt to give to you. So something like that happens. You know, um, you know it's, that's called prophecy, if you will, and we're to discern it, not to reject it, but to discern it. And so, you know, you put something like that uh, on a back burner or whatever, and you see how God brings illumination to that. So in this case, um, it was quite godlike over the next few months, if you will. I'm having conversations with people, and maybe I was more attuned to it, but we'd have conversations, and people would use the word ditches. And, uh, you know, it was just like, okay, and I'd hear what they were saying. And, and um, at, the, at the end of the discernment for me, what it boiled down to was that, that this was um, part of my life, part of my calling was to walk on a ridge as I lead people and to keep them out of the ditches. And those two ditches, in particular, the ones I want to talk about this morning, have to do with the message of grace that we are diving into in Ephesians chapter 1, where it's all about God's grace, His lavish, abundant grace to us. But when we think about God's grace and His truth, one of the ditches is legalism. That if we don't understand God's grace well enough, and we understand who God is and that there are uh, requirements to walk in a right relationship with him, we can easily fall into legalism where although we believe, you know, God is good and he loves us and I still need to do something just to make sure I'm okay with God. And so we, we, we work hard sometimes and we have a, a standard we want to live up to. And when we live up to that standard, we feel like we're doing really good and we feel good about ourselves and we, we feel that God would be good with, with me. But when I, when I mess up, as is inevitably going to happen, I start to feel really bad about myself and I can easily spiral into a, a downward trend and, and beat myself up and feel like I have to do enough penance. You know, I have to beat myself up enough until I can be right with God again. And that's a sign of legalism. And, and, and very often with legalism, we become judgmental of other people as well, especially when we're doing well. Um, we... we, we we judge other people. And so this is why if you're here this morning, you don't have a relationship with Jesus, sometimes Christians fall into that because they haven't understood grace well enough. And, and that's, a, that's a sign of legalism. 
So that's one of the ditches. Almost pendulum swing to the other side, the other ditch I, I've called lawlessness. And that is that in an understanding of who God is and what he's done for us and his grace, that there's grace for forgiveness, for justification, all those things. But there's not a real understanding that God's grace is also to transform us and to empower us. And that there are actually requirements. There, are, there is a way to follow Jesus. There was a way of life that Christians had that they, they wanted to follow Jesus and be transformed. And so God's grace is not just to, to give us something to be made right in relationship with God, but to continue in that so that God's grace and the, and the grace of his Holy Spirit, the power of his Holy Spirit... Grace does not become an excuse for, oh, it doesn't matter. God's grace covers it all. But grace becomes a, a means by which we are made right with God and by which we can walk in a way that's pleasing unto him. So we want to keep out of the ditch of lawlessness. We want to keep out of the ditch of legalism. And we want to walk that ridge of grace and truth. And I can probably think of no other letter in the Bible than the, the letter to the Ephesian church that illustrates this so clearly and so well. There are six chapters in the, in the letter to the church at Ephesus. The last three chapters, chapters four to six, are all about what a Christian should do. Live in this way. Take off this. Put this on. Uh, love as you have been loved. Forgive as you have been forgiven. Talks about how we handle our bodies, sexual, um, se sexual stewardship, sexual immorality. So there's a whole, there are a whole bunch of things as to how a follower of Jesus should live. And that's in chapters 4 to 6. And I think Paul is very intentional because before we get to what we do and how we follow Jesus and our activity, it's so important that that get rooted in the love of God and his lavish grace that has been poured out into our lives. And that's exactly what Paul addresses in Ephesians chapter 1 to 3. It touches on who God is, what he's done for us through his son Jesus, who God has made us to be in this relationship with him. See, that is the foundation. That is the, the roots, where our roots need to go before we begin to, th to think about how we're going to live our lives. Because if we're not rooted there in God's love and his grace and what he's done for us, then we can easily fall into a ditch of legalism. But we don't want to live a life where we're just hearing about God's grace and we're, we're taking in all that he's done for us and it has no effect on how we live. James says a person like that is just deceiving themselves. You've got to be a doer of the word, not a hearer only. And so Ephesians brings us together in such a beautiful way. And this morning we're diving into Ephesians chapter 1. And, and it's really all about God's grace. And I, I want us to swim in it, to soak it up. But with the, with the knowledge and the understanding that this is meant to transform us and to change us by the power of God's Holy Spirit. We're gonna look at verses 11 and 12 today. Let me read those two verses to us. It says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. 
So we begin, as Paul does in so many of these little parts of this one long, long run-on sentence, with in Christ. Everything that we're talking about here happens to us. The grace of God happens to us because of Jesus Christ and because of what he's done for us and the fact that we are in him. In Christ, Paul says, we have obtained an inheritance. I love that. And how appropriate on a morning on, when we're, it's family day weekend. Because inheritance is a family term. Uh, family, it, like inheritance has everything to do with mom and dad, you know, handing down the assets at some point. You inherit from your parents. And this was such a big thing in, in first century culture. I mean, you, may, you wouldn't survive without the inheritance of your parents. It had to do with land and your ability, you know, to, to earn a living. Inheritance was so, so important. And it's family language. And so that's so amazing. We have an inheritance. And that inheritance comes from our Father. So at the beginning of this letter in Ephesians 1, in the first couple of verses, it says, grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. God, our Father. Let's never, uh, let's never lose our awe for that privilege that God who created this world, who spoke it into an existence, and who today holds it together by the word of his power so that the earth rotates on the right angle on its axis at the right speed in the right relationship to the sun and the moon so that we have tides where the, you know, the, the oceans don't cross their boundaries and we have ecosystems that, that work and intricacies uh, that functions so, that, so that, that all this works together. We have oxygen that we can breathe and there's a right mix of carbon dioxide and oxygen in our, in our atmosphere. All these things, God holds it together by the word of his power. He is the all creator, all powerful God and yet he says that we can refer to him as father. Let's never lose awe of that. And our father, Paul writes to us, has an inheritance for us. Creator God, omnipotent, all-powerful, has inheritance for us. I don't think that's going to be a small thing. I think it's going to be rather remarkable. I've reflected on this in my own natural life and my own natural father and mother. And my dad, uh, some of you know, was a, a minister. He was a pastor. And, um, you know, they... they we're never rich by North American standards. You know, we were never really well-to-do, but we were adequately provided for. And, um, you know, my dad was, uh, he believed that God had a bigger shovel than he did. And so he was very generous. But as we watch this, we watch, you know, as he's giving, God's out giving back to him. It was really a beautiful thing to see. And how like, Dad, so... Some of my background is a financial planner, and so now looking back on my dad, like it, it was like, like he had no idea what he was doing with his finances and all those kind of things, and yet God took care of him and provided for him without any sort of planning whatsoever. It was just a really cool thing because he was generous, and he, and he gave, and God was faithful and took care of him. And, um, and he passed away, and then my mom passed away this last June, and you know, our family is so uh, grateful for the spiritual inheritance, if you will, the spiritual legacy that my parents left behind. But we knew there's not going to be a big financial check coming. Um, that's just not going to happen. And we're, we're totally okay with that. But think about God our Father, and who he is, and what he commands, and what his resources are, and what he's capable of doing, what he's capable of bringing you into 
as your inheritance. Shouldn't that change how we live and think and how we act day to day? Like, doesn't that make a difference knowing that your future is taken care of? We learned a little bit last week when, when Paul refers to an inheritance, what, that, what that's referring to. And we saw in verse 10 how in, in the days to come, in the fullness of time, and according to God's plan, God's going to unite all things together in Christ. And we saw that, like, what the future is going to look like. Um, we're going to experience, those who are in Christ, we're going to experience a new heaven and a new earth, we are not going to be disembodied spirits floating around somewhere in the clouds, but we are going to be given, those of us who are in Christ, we are going to be given a new resurrected body. It'll have some continuity with the bodies we have now, but it'll be completely different. It'll be powered by the Spirit. Paul says it's a spiritual body. That's what he means by that. It's going to be powered by the Spirit. It, it, it won't, there's no, going to be no pain, no suffering. Isn't that amazing? Um, this is what we're headed for, and heaven and earth are going to be joined, and we're going to live in that in, in a real way. We've probably been, have work to do, responsibilities to do. Like, this is what our future is going to be, and it's going to be glorious. And the most glorious part of this whole future, which is our inheritance, is that God will be at the center. God will be at the center. We get a glimpse of this in Revelation chapter 21, the last book in the Bible, the second last chapter. And John there writes, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, he's talking about the end. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. They will be his people and he will be, and God himself will be with them as their God. The pinnacle of our inheritance is God. There's going to be so many things that we're going to be excited about and, and, and enjoy and, and relish. But overshadowing all of that is that we get God. You see, today we, we, we have a relationship with God, most of us in this room, through Jesus Christ but we see through a glass darkly. One day, the scripture says, we'll see him face to face. Like all the veil, all the mist, it's all gonna be removed and we'll see him face to face and how glorious that will be. He will be our God and God will be with us. Something else that Revelation says there, we will be his people. Now that's a great segue to Go back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, and some of you, I know, will be reading a different version than what I read to you this morning already. I read to you out of the English Standard Version. It says, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Some of you might have a New International Version Bible, and it says something very different. It says, in him we were also chosen. What gives? What's going on here? The word translated inheritance there can be translated in, in two different ways, and scholars are really divided on what is the right way to interpret what's going on here. It could be rightly interpreted as, as it is that we have obtained an inheritance. But the word has to do with casting of lots, and it could also very likely mean we are God's inheritance. 
And both are stated in Revelation chapter 21. It reminds me of one of my favorite songs um, in a very hard time in my life was Oceans. And it says, I am yours and you are mine. This is the, this is the inheritance that we are headed for. And, and both are biblically true. So we read in Psalm 33 verse 12, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. We back up further in the Old Testament, it says in Deuteronomy, but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. In him we have obtained an inheritance, or in him we are his inheritance. Whatever way the translations go, both of them, both of them then go to the same thing, which is that we have been predestined for this. We've been predestined for this according to the purpose of of God. Now, the word predestination, it's a biblical word. I don't want you to be afraid of it. Um, to be predestinated is, is in Scripture. It, it is not a word that's exclusive to a particular stream within Christianity. It's a very important word, and I think we want to we grasp our, our minds around it this morning as to how does God predestinate? I think this is so important. There are different views on how to understand predestination within the Christian world. I'm going to talk about two, and there are variations. Very simply, option two, which I'm going to begin with, would come from a man named John Calvin in the 16th century. Calvin understood, rightly so, that people are separated from God. All humanity is separated from God because of their sin. Calvin believed that they're completely incapable ever of turning to God and so what happens, why some people become Christ followers and some don't, is because God chooses, and the language they would take right out of Ephesians 1, God chooses before the foundation of the world some to have faith in Jesus Christ while he overlooks all the rest. Okay, this was um, John's Calvin view, John Calvin's view, he was taking from a, a man named Augustine who wrote in the 4th and early 5th century. But this was not the way that the early church really looked at predestination previous to that. So I, I would like to bring to our attention um, option one, because I think it existed before. The predestination that Paul is talking about here in Ephesians 1 can be taken a different way. And that is God predestines all those who are in Christ to the graces that he's listed here in Ephesians chapter 1. In other words, people aren't chosen whether or not they'll be in Christ. But once they are in Christ, God chooses, he predestines glorious things for them. So because they're in Christ, God then predestines a person to be holy and blameless in his sight. God predestines a person to be an adopted child of God. God predestines a person to be forgiven, to be redeemed. And as we read here in verse 11, God predestines someone to have an inheritance or to be God's inheritance. This is an analogy that others have used that I think is, is a good analogy. So I don't know how you're enjoying the cold here in Abbotsford, but uh, you probably could right now take a plane out of Bellingham to Phoenix this afternoon. They have a regular flight, and you could get to somewhere really nice and comfortable. Okay, that plane, which will depart around 5 p.m. this afternoon, is predestined to go to Phoenix. 
You're not going to get on that plane, which is labeled Phoenix, and it'll decide to go somewhere else. No, it's determined in advance where that plane is going. Now, most of you are probably not going to Phoenix because you're not getting on that plane. The analogy is this. When we get in Christ, our destination is determined. Our inheritance is predetermined. Our forgiveness, our redemption, our standing before God, holy and blameless. Our adoption is predetermined. This is God's glorious plan. So the question is, how do we get in Christ? Is it God's choosing irregardless of our choice before the foundation of the world? Or is it the proclamation of the gospel whereby we repent and we believe and when that happens, we are placed in Christ? Ephesians 1, verse 12, Paul says, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit. That, that phrase there is a sealed with the Spirit. That's, a, that's like ownership. That's what they did with a seal. It, it showed ownership. You're, you're owned. When do we become owned? When do we get our inheritance? When does all the predestination of these things happen? It happens when we come in Christ. And how does Paul show to us here how it happens? When we hear the gospel and we believe, we are placed in Christ. God does not choose outside of your will. God places you in Christ when you freely choose to respond to his powerful, beautiful gospel with the Holy Spirit at work in your heart, drawing you to him. But God will not violate your will because he loves you and because God respects the, the image of God in which he's created to us that we will have a choice, just like Adam and Eve had a choice to obey or to reject God. So if you're here this morning and you are, uh, you're not yet a follower of Jesus, the, the invitation is very simply there. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him, whosoever shall not perish but have everlasting life, whosoever, God has given an invitation and when you accept that invitation, you turn from, from living life on your own way and you turn to God and you say, God, I'm in. I, I, I place my faith and my trust in you. He places you in Christ and all these incredible, glorious evidences of grace now become yours, predestined to be true for you by a God who loves you and gave his son for you. I think that's amazing. There's a reason why Paul is using the word predestined here in his letter to the church at Ephesus. If you've read the background to Ephesus, the church uh, in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, you will see that uh, the culture that they lived in was not necessarily favorable to this Christian faith that's beginning to invade their city through the preaching of the gospel through Paul. We read in Acts chapter 19, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. That's what Christianity was called back then. It was called the way because people lived a certain way. They were in the way of Jesus. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, 
brought no little business to the craftsmen. So Ephesus was the center of one of the uh, wonders of the world, which was the worship, uh, the temple to Artemis or Diana. And people would come from all over the world. It was like, you know, tourism, money to the city. And so when Paul preaches the gospel, it comes in direct clash with that culture. And it's causing them to lose business. And this is no small thing to the tradespeople in Ephesus. And what follows is a riot in the city. So in 2011, some of you maybe have tried to wipe it out of your memory. Uh, some of you know that Vancouver experienced a riot. Do you remember what that was all about? Anybody remember that was all about? I mean, I don't believe it now, but apparently we had a pretty good hockey team back then. And they made it all the way to the Stanley Cup final, game seven, here in our city, Vancouver, I was in Vancouver downtown on Georgia Street at Coastal Church. They, they showed the game on their big screen. And so myself and my two daughters went and watched the game. Uh, our team lost. The good team lost. And afterwards, we're dragging ourselves um, along Georgia Street. And we're walking towards Granville. If you don't know where Granville is, it's sort of the, one of the heart streets of the city where all the, a lot of shops are, where people congregate. As we're walking towards Granville Street, we can see some smoke towards where the, the rink was. And we get to Granville, and there's throngs of people walking, and there is something in the air. And it had not erupted yet, but as we're walking, and I think maybe we'd walked less than a block, I said to my girls, girls, we got to get out of here. I said, this is going to blow so we backtracked and we walked about three blocks back from the way we had come. We walked east and then walked parallel to Granville Street and it was like a completely different world apparently. We were getting texts, started to get texts from friends like, are you guys okay? People who knew we were downtown, are you okay? Are you all right? Is everything going to be, oh, are you safe? And uh, with what's going on anyway? So we later find out in the news, driving home the radio and then television later that night about all the destruction, the violence, the venom, the hatred that was spilled out into the city. You could taste it. You could taste it in the air. You could feel it. Now imagine you're a follower of the way. And in your city, there's this riot. There's this uprising because of what you believe in. You're not necessarily in an environment where being a Christian is going to be culturally acceptable and approved. And so it can be for us. You know, sometimes we're in a situation, not in a riot situation, but, you know, maybe we're in, we're in business and things are, are being done unethically and you just can't go along with it. And so now your faith is, is on a collision course with the culture of your company. Um, it can happen in your family. You know, this is family day weekend, but not all families are get along. And because of your faith, it may put you at odds with your family. There's a, there's a collision. There's a, there's a crash. And, and for people in Ephesus, it, you know, it's not just people not, may not like you. They may not do business with you if you're a tradesperson or whatever. Like, this could dramatically affect your livelihood. And there would be a temptation to draw back. Just to to move back, to be less bold. And Paul doesn't want them to be less bold. He doesn't want them to draw back. He doesn't want them to question, will it be worth it to follow Jesus in this environment? He wants them to be full-on followers of the way. And so he uses the word predestined. 
You got to know this, guys. What God has for you, nothing can take it away. It's predestined for you. And to strengthen his argument or to strengthen their faith, he stacks up some more words. He says, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In other words, wow, like God has purposed this. When I'm writing to you about the grace of God and about your inheritance, like God has purposed this. I mean, if God's purposed something, it's going to happen. And he's purposed it sort of not just flippantly, like, okay, let's do this. It says, according to the counsel of his will. God, who is all wise, deliberated, if you will. He deliberated on his plan for you, on your inheritance, on the grace, on the adoption, on you standing holy and blameless in his sight. Like This is all part of his deliberation. That's how much he loves you. How much he loves us. So I mentioned my mother passed away in June of this year, or last year. And, you know, one of the things that's crazy about when a loved one dies is, you know, you want to grieve, but you have all these decisions to make immediately. Like, what time's the funeral? What day? You know, all these things. What was really cool for our family, though, is uh, my mom, and, you know, we all have our quirks. My mom is really detailed. And I miss that gene. Passed on. It's going to pass on to the next generation, maybe. But I miss that detailed gene. But she had a file that was for her funeral. And there's a list. Like, there's nothing almost, nothing left to figuring it out. Like, <clears throat> what song she wants. She had an order for her service. Like, what should happen when, and what song should be sung, and which scriptures, and, you know, and who possibly we could ask to do this or that. Um, nothing cost us anything. Any, everything was already paid for. I mean, it was, it was just incredible. As we're reflecting on this, what it made us think of was how much mom loved us. That she would take care of all these details, especially knowing some of her sons. She had deliberated because we were important to her. The scripture says here, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the deliberation, according to the counsel of his will. Oh, God loves us. He's got a great plan for us. He's been thinking, as I said last week, he's scheming and it's glorious what he has in store for, our, for us. Wow. Our inheritance is not something we can earn. We can only receive it. It is the gift of God, which he has planned for us for all eternity. Oh, I hope this sinks into our hearts because, you see, I know in our day-to-day lives, we can get so stuck in the minutia. We can get so stuck in, in our, our decisions that are important, but smaller decisions, you know, about, okay, should we buy this item or, or do we move here? Um, do I take this opportunity at my job? And those are all important things. Um, but if, if we haven't got the big picture, we, our decisions in the minutia won't be as good. We need to understand the big picture and see it and see how glorious it is. Walter Leefield, he, uh, in his commentary on Ephesians, he talked about that we have a tendency to 
among Christians to be engrossed in an attempt to determine God's will for each of our lives, each decision. But many such decisions can be made with more precision and more legitimate reason if they're measured against the long-range will of God that is revealed throughout God's word. And we're going to see how that plays out in the next phrase here. We are placed in Christ by God's purpose for a purpose. We move on to verse 12 and it says this, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In scripture, when you see the phrase so that, it introduces what we call a purpose clause. It's introducing a purpose. So that. So all these things that God has done, and in particular our inheritance and the deliberation of his will, what has he done it for? Well, so that, Paul says, we who were the first to hope in Christ, and by that he might be meaning Paul and his team, how they believed before the church in Ephesus because they brought the church, they brought the message of the gospel to the church in Ephesus, or some people think he's referring to the nation of Israel because he's primary writing to Gentiles, that Israel believed before the Gentiles. I, regardless of what you want to take it as here, it, it really doesn't matter to Paul's point, I don't think, because the next verse he talks about you also were included so it, he's talking about all who have faith in Jesus Christ who are placed in Christ we have a purpose what is that purpose what are you living for today what, what drives you what's your goal what's your underlying motivation well, well Paul tells us I think where we should be heading as followers of Jesus Christ so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. The ultimate goal, the ultimate end is that who we are, what happens to us, what happens in and through us would be for the glory of God. I gotta tell you, this has become the paradigm for my life and my family in the last 10 years or so. That as we consider the decisions that we make, um, our relationships, the question we're always asking and the decision, the questions we're always asking is, how could this be for the glory of God? So how can I have a better marriage? For the glory of God. How can I be a better father? For the glory of God. Not so other people will look better on me. How can I be a better pastor? For the glory of God. If we could ask that question after all the things that we're deliberating about, this is the purpose this is the purpose of God, so that we would be to the praise of his glory. Now, in case you don't know what the word glory means in the, in the New Testament, it just basically means to give an estimation, you know, some worth, some honor. In the Old Testament, it carries a little deeper meaning. It, it has to do with weight, in that if you were to add up a person's, um, their ability, who they are, their character, what they've accomplished, and you pile it all up, you'd get a certain weight. Well, in the Old Testament, we, we're, we're seen to know that no one, the weight of anyone's glory comes nowhere near the glory of God. We sang this morning, you have no rival. You have no equal. So it is with God. His glory so far outweighs anything and the purpose of our lives and what God's doing in us and through us and that we are his possession and that he is ours is so that we exist for his glory. 
We see this in the relationship with Jesus and, and the Father and the Holy Spirit. Jesus comes to earth and he says, not, I'm not here to live for my glory, but for the Father's. And the Father glorifies Jesus as he dies on the cross and is resurrected from the dead and gives him a name that is above every name. And the Holy Spirit is poured out to what? To bring glory to, to Jesus and to the Father, to point people towards them. This is, this is to live for the glory of another is, what is, is, is to get at the heart of God. And God says, that's, that's my purpose in you, that you would live for my glory. You would be for my glory. John Stott, um, as he reflects on this in Ephesians, he says, thus everything we have and are in Christ comes from God and returns to God. It begins in, this, in his will and ends in his glory. For this is where everything begins and ends. Yet such Christian talk comes into violent collision with the man-centeredness and self-centeredness of the world. Fallen man, imprisoned in his own little ego, has an almost boundless confidence in the power of his own will and an almost insatiable appetite for the praise of his own glory. But the people of God have at least begun to be turned inside out. Society has new values and new ideals for God's people and God's possession who live by God's will and for God's glory. May that be true of us here at Central Heights. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. Normally at the end of a, a message, you know, I will close in prayer. Today I want us all to close in prayer. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me. And what I want us to do is to pray like they do in other cultures in the world where we all pray together out loud. And what we're going to pray is, um, I'm just going to invite you as we've reflected on God's grace and his goodness towards us, how would you like to express glory to him? How do we want to encourage one another with a sound where we're, we're bringing glory, we're pointing each other to the glory of God. I, I would love for us to do that. And so I'm going to pray out loud. You pray out loud. That way people around, if everybody does it, nobody's going to be worrying about what anybody else thinks. And then the worship team's going to come and they'll lead us into giving God glory through song. Are you ready? All right, let's pray. God, thank you for all that you've done for us. Thank you, Lord, for how you love us. Thank you for the provision of your grace Thank you for the provision of your mercy, Lord. Thank you that you loved us with an undying love, that you gave us your son and that you predestined us, Lord, to be holy and blameless in your sight. You predestined us, Lord, to be your adopted children. Thank you, God, that you predestined us, Lord, to be forgiven, to be redeemed. Thank you, Lord, that you've shown us um, the mystery of your will, Lord, and you've predestined us to inherit you and to be your inheritance, Lord, and to live for your glory and to be sealed by your spirit. Lord, we give you praise this morning. We're so grateful for all that you've done.